Welcome to Podcast Therapy. I'm your host, Suzanne Whitman. Let's face it, trying to find a new podcast is like going down the proverbial rabbit hole. But if you're listening to Podcast Therapy, I do the work for you by featuring favorite podcasts from friends, listeners, and even interviewing the podcasters themselves. Join me every week for a new episode because podcast therapy is cheaper than retail therapy. Hello, Gary. Hey, how are you? I'm good. How are you doing? Not bad. I'm kind of excited about this. <laughs> I am too. Let's do it. <laughs> um, you know, I really want to start with who you are. I've been on your website. I've read the details, but um, you know, you are a Wisconsin native. So start there and how you got to be where you are right now. Okay. Uh, I was born and raised in Appleton, went to high school there, graduated from Appleton East. Uh, went to school at McAllister College in St. Paul, Minnesota, a small but lively liberal arts college. Uh, was recruited there. So when I was when I was at East, the thing I I did most of all, I was involved in speech and debate, and I did pretty well. Uh, ended up being one of the top ten in the United States, and I was recruited to uh, do debate in college, and that's kind of what I spent a lot of my time on. I ended up being in the top ten. Uh, my junior and senior year ended up coming back to Appleton for a few years. And I coached debate. We won three state championships uh, while I was coaching. And then I started a business in this brand new thing called the internet. Uh, this is back in 1994. And uh, I was just a kid in my twenties. And four years after starting that, I had this company with 50 people working for me. And I sold that to a big multinational. And after I did that, I conned them into sending me on a trip around the world to talk to their various offices about internet stuff. And they did. So I went on a three-week whirlwind tour around the world. And I'd never really been anywhere before. And that kind of got the travel bug. And I did some other business stuff and went back to school for a few years, studied geology. And thought I would maybe get a PhD or something. And I saw what PhD students were going through. And I was like, yeah, this is not for me. So I came up with the idea of traveling around the world. And in March of 2007, that's what I did. I turned over the keys to my house and I started traveling. And I thought I'd travel around the world for a year or two. And it kind of just never stopped. I traveled for almost a decade without having a house. Uh visited over 200 countries and territories uh that includes everything from antarctica to you know puerto rico to french polynesia stuff like that and then the pandemic hit and everything i had going just fell apart because the entire multi-trillion dollar travel and tourism industry worldwide just collapsed pretty much overnight and uh what i began doing in july of 2020 is i started a daily podcast called Everything Everywhere Daily, which was the name of my travel website. And that's what I've been doing ever since. So that's kind of the condensed life story. So I've heard other people say that, you know, kind of the dream would be to travel around and um, either get paid to do that or have enough money to do that. So obviously one or the other, did you, were you getting paid when you were, you were taking pictures too, right? I mean, I've, I've seen your photographs. I just... I taught myself how to do photography while I was traveling. Okay. Uh, when I started, I bought a camera that was like 
the theory being, oh, you buy an expensive camera and I'll take good pictures. And I learned right away that's not how it worked. Mm-hmm. And I just sort of taught myself how to be better. And eventually uh, I got named travel photographer of the year in North America three times. Wow. That's amazing. Okay. So your camera at the time, was it, um, it wasn't probably wasn't even digital, was it? Yeah. It's always it been digital. Okay. okay. Although okay. when I, when I started initially, my idea was to do video, not so much have a website, but at the time in 2007, all of the cameras still had tape. Uh, even though there were smaller, you know, digital tapes, I had this, I, I remember I was in this small village resort in Fiji I had the stack of tapes trying to import them into my laptop, which was a 2007, you know, MacBook pro Mm -hmm. and just pulling my hair out because this just was ridiculous how, how difficult this was. And eventually I kind of just threw in the towel and focused on still photography rather than doing video and YouTube existed, but I don't think it had been bought by Google at that time. So it still wasn't a huge thing. It was just kind of a video site. Yeah. And I remember, um, and this is neither here or there, but I remember trying to, to do a project and trying to upload something. I think it was to YouTube. And at the time back then it was this, you know, taking it from your video camera and trying to put it on there. And it was very lengthy. And um, I'm not sure if we ever got it to get up. there. <laughs> it was just a mess. So I can just imagine in the beginnings of when you're trying to do that, how difficult that would have been. So well, your well, pictures are beautiful. So, especially from the middle of the Pacific Ocean, um, internet generally was not as good as it is now. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things I bought when I started traveling, I had this little keychain thing that could tell me if there was a wi- it was a Wi-Fi detector, because I was actually using uh, internet cafes at the time, mm-hmm. because those were much more common than. Uh, Wi-Fi was. You don't really see internet cafes anymore because so many people have phones, you know, even in developing countries that it's just not a thing. And even when I started traveling, I remember I had this Samsung flip phone, which I thought at the time was amazing (laughs) because it had a color screen and everything. And I, I literally threw it in the garbage when I was in New Zealand because it was useless to me. It was just something I had to carry around because there were no SIM cards. Mm-hmm. So I had this phone I could not use anywhere. I couldn't even use it offline. It didn't, you know, there were no apps or anything you could run on it. And I started traveling in the space between when Steve Jobs announced the iPhone and when it actually went on sale. And I remember um, watching his presentation. It's like, oh, this is amazing. But, you know, it'd be months before you could see it. And then it came on sale when, again, I was in the Pacific. And then it was in August. I come out. I I'm back in Hawaii for a bit and I make a special trip to the mall in Honolulu just to go and see an iPhone for myself. Cause I wanted to see if it was real. And then later that year in, when I was in Tokyo, I actually bought an iPod touch, which was their iPhone. That's not an iPhone. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I thought that was like the greatest thing since sliced bread because you could, it was my, it just replaced so many things I was carrying around you know, whether it was an alarm clock or, you know, all this, all this stuff. And it's only gotten, you know, better since. So this sounds like really illustrious that you're traveling from country to country. Uh, What did that look like? Were you staying in hotels? Were you staying in hostels? Were you, you know, where were you living while you were doing hostels and guest houses? There's really no point in staying at some place that's really expensive Mm. uh, when you're traveling that long, because, 
for starters, you're going to meet more people at a hostel than you're going to at a like regular hotel. Mm -hmm. Uh, because it's, it's a lot more communal. You'll meet people who just came from where you're going to, and you can get, you know, pretty fresh advice from there. Uh, and also, you know, why spend, you know, one, 200 bucks a night when you can spend a fraction of that and just spend longer traveling, you know, most of the time you're in a hotel room, you're unconscious. So what's (laughs) the, you know, what's the point? So long as there are no bed bugs and there's hot water, I'm, which I'm, I'm sure happy. you encountered places that there were there was that or a lack of that. Uh, once, I there's only one time I actually can say that I had bed bugs, and that was a uh, a hostel in Costa Rica, okay. and that was the only time I ever really encountered it. Wow, that's amazing. So you're you had a website, and or did you call it a travel blog at the time? Yeah, I, okay. I think that's what most people, if you know, in the travel industry, that's what they would know me for. Okay, so you went to these places, and then um, what you did was take pictures, and then were you writing content for the blog too to describe where yeah. you were? Okay. In fact, okay. that changed over time quite a bit because when I started, Twitter and Facebook still weren't that popular. Mm-hmm. I mean, they were there, but over time, they kind of overtook. People would go to the website every day, or they'd subscribe in an RSS reader to be kept up to date with what you were doing. So mm-hmm. I would just write random thoughts and observations of wherever I was. And I would use a, a headline or something that, uh, you know, was something catchy or a song lyric or something like that. I wasn't thinking about SEO or any of that stuff. And that was kind of the glory days of blogging when a lot of that stuff didn't matter. Yeah. Yeah. Did you have your, cause I feel like when we've talked a little bit that, um, you are perhaps a techie person. So did you create your own website or were you using some of those um, platforms that were out there, like the WordPress and the bloggers and whatever else? Oh, I've used WordPress since day one. Okay. okay. I don't know why you wouldn't. It just makes everything easy. It's, I mean, I've, I've had my own website since the mid nineties. And so I've done everything from, you know, do all the HTML on my own. Uh, yeah. WordPress just makes it easy. I'm, I'm not sure. And it's free. So I don't did know why you, you wouldn't use it. Did you learn coding on your own? Yeah. I mean, when I started my company, you kind of had no choice. Okay. And it was there, the tools that were available back then were very crude uh, today. So there's a common stack of like uh, Apache, PHP, uh, Linux, things like that. None of those existed the very first years of the internet. So if you wanted to get online, it was like you had to have a Spark station running a copy of Oracle, which is really expensive. Um, And hooking it up with a database, you'd use Perl scripting. And it was bad just just all around. It's so much easier now to to do anything. It's not even funny. Yeah, my so I had a mommy blog back in 2008-ish. And at the time there was WordPress and all of that. Um, but after that, what came from that was uh, my husband, who's a teacher wanted to start this. I can't even remember what it was, some kind of teaching method. And I said to him, you know, you need a website. And he's like, yeah, I think that's a really good idea. And I'm like, yeah. So who's going to create that website for you? And he's like, you are. And I said, I don't know how to do that. He said, well, you better figure it out. And so for me, it was, um, I think it was lynda.com. Do you remember that? 
Yeah. Yeah. So that was out there and they had some free tutorials of where you could learn code. And again, this is before, um, what's the name of that? Well, there's, there's a lot uh, of those sites where you can now learn how to do um, code and all that. But uh, so literally I was watching tutorials and just figuring out how to do it and then um, creating it. And I remember like, you know, this is how I create a box to put a photo in it or whatever. I mean, and it was, it was ugly. It was really bad. Um, but I did a couple of things, got a little couple of freelance jobs here and there, um, considered myself a closet techie. And then uh, shortly after that, the whole drag and drop just came in. Right. And it was like, you can make websites, but just dragging stuff over. And it was, it, it became so easy. Literally anybody could do it if they wanted to. So technology, I think you would agree has changed significantly and has changed a lot quicker uh, lately within the last decade, two decades. You agree with that? Yeah. I think that, um, you know, with making websites and, and whatnot, that's kind of plateaued, but there's a lot more movement now in like podcasting. I think that's also gotten a lot easier. Mm-hmm. A lot of people when they first started again, had to do everything from scratch. They had to make their RSS feed by hand and whatnot. And, uh, podcasting's become pretty easy and there's all sorts of tools that are being announced almost every month, uh, to try to make that easier. So how long have you had your podcast? I started July 1st, 2020. So, right, so relatively new 20 months. Yeah. What made you decide you want to do that? I know I understand like the pandemic. Um, but what was your thought process to transition from what you were doing to that? Uh, well, one was a business decision that I couldn't rely on the travel industry anymore for anything. Cause I had no idea when it's going to come back. And even now, that a lot of the mass mandates and stuff are still gone, it's still a pain to travel Mm -hmm. because there are all these testing requirements and they have to be certain tests and they have to be done within a certain period of time and they have to be done in a certain language. And I've heard horror stories of people who, you know, they, they don't get the results back in time and their flights get canceled. It's still just a pain. And then, you know, if you get vaccinated, even then, you know, certain vaccines are not recognized in certain countries, unless your proof is in a certain language. Um, and, and the travel industry still has not come back as far as economically. They're not where they were. Uh, and even before the pandemic started, I was becoming a bit disillusioned with where things are at with mm-hmm. travel blogging because it was all boiling down to people writing the same SEO articles for everything. Mm-hmm. And I wanted something else. So I had this idea that I had for a couple of years beforehand uh, for doing this podcast, but I had, I was envisioning more of a longer form show. Uh, in fact, I was doing research on an episode where I was going to just answer the question, why is the Mona Lisa the most famous painting in the world? Because it's not a religious painting. It's not a painting of someone famous. It's not a king or a queen. It's not, uh, you know, why this painting? It's just a portrait. And there's actually a really good story behind it. And I started getting into the history of Leonardo da Vinci and the painting, and it was, you know, going to end up being a three-hour episode. Uh, long story is it got stolen in the early 20th century. And when it got stolen, it was in papers all around the world. And what was otherwise a, you know, a, you know, an art historian might have known what the Mona Lisa was, but no one else would have. It became the most famous painting and people were going to the Louvre after it was stolen to look at the spot on the wall where it was hanging. Uh, And when it was found and brought back, it made this giant procession through Italy and France. And every time it stopped, tens of thousands of people would show up. And ever since then, it's been the most famous painting in the world. 
And I realized that economically doing one really long podcast didn't make sense. And so I had nothing else going on. And so I just kind of looked at the numbers. I'm like, well, if, if I was to do a daily podcast, that would, you know, in some ways be a lot harder, but in other ways it would actually uh, make more business sense because you're basically doing seven times the number of shows. So, but you, I mean, you must spend a lot of time researching your topics, right? So how can you say about approximately, I mean, hours? Yeah. Every show is going to be at least four hours and some usually, you know, six to eight, but it all depends if I at least mentally know what I'm going to talk about beforehand. So we are recording this on March 13th. Tomorrow, Monday is March 14th, which is Pi Day. So I've had this episode planned for months. So I know exactly what I'm going to do. It's going to be super easy to write. I'm just going to be talking about Pi. Uh, And then the day after that is March 15th, which is the Ides of March. And I know exactly what I'm going to be talking about with that. Um, It's the assassination of Caesar, but also... This, the Roman naming, the, the, we use the Roman calendar for our months mm-hmm. and it actually makes a lot of sense. The Roman way they, they did days of the month and like their weeks makes no sense. It really is stupid. And <laughs> that, you know, I'm going to go into as well because the Ides was like the middle, but they wouldn't say, oh, let's have a meeting. Let's meet on the 17th. No, they would say two days after the Ides. Oh. Or they would, the, the start of the month was, was the calends. And so everything was based on time before or after the calends or the ides, which is just really confusing, but that's what they did. And that's, you're going to be your topic. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Do you, uh, well, not that, that you could ever run out of topics, but I mean, are there times when you're like, wow, um, I'm not sure what I'm going to, uh, you know, what I'm going to present pretty much every day. Uh, but, but I have a, a running list of like 700 show ideas now. Wow. And every time I do a show, it brings up new topics that I can talk about. So the Ides of March is a natural one. Cause it, I'm, you know, it's based on that date that I'm doing it. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I was talking about how weird the Roman calendar is, but then you get into like, well, what did, what did other people have for calendars? And so, you know, then it's like, well, I've not done a show on the Mayan calendar. Uh, the Babylonians had this base 60 that we still have today based on the number of seconds in a minute, number of minutes in an hour, 60. You know, it's the only thing we do where, where it's based on 60. Why isn't it some other unit that's 10 or, you know, something like that? Yeah. Well, in the French Revolution, they tried that. They had a decimal system where there were 10 months and there were 10 hours in a day and they, they broke everything up by units of 10 because they really, really love the metric system, but that didn't work either. So those are all possible shows you can do. Once you kind of go down one alley, it like breeds more possible show ideas. Okay. Do you have, do you solicit any ideas from your listeners? Yeah. Okay. I, I've had several that they've uh, given me. Can you name maybe one of your favorite episodes? Is, is, am I allowed to ask that? Is it that like, you know, asking who your favorite child is? <laughs> yeah, and you'll get a similar answer. Uh, <laughs> one of my favorite was on a guy by the name of Joe Medicine Crow. He was a Crow Indian who went to go fight in World War II, and he was the last uh, Crow war chief. And you become a Crow war chief it's not something that's bestowed upon you or you're elected to, you have to earn it and you have to earn it in battle. 
Well, normally you would earn it out on the, the plains, right? Mm-hmm. And you had to touch someone in battle. You had to steal someone's weapon. You had to lead a military party and you had to steal a horse. Those were the four things you had to do. He did them all in Europe in World War II, including stealing a horse. And he didn't know that he had even done it until he, he came back and started talking to the elders in his tribe. And they were like, yeah, you did it. You know, he, he was in this one city in Belgium and he was turning a corner and there was a German and he ran into him and he had a fight with him and he ended up ripping his rifle away and the German ran. And so he both touched someone in battle and he stole the weapon. And he, he supposedly, there's no way to verify, he, he led the first raiding party actually into German territory in the war. And then he was, there was also this one SS camp they found that had like 45 thoroughbreds and they were going to start mortaring it. And before he did, he asked his commanders, like, let me go in and get the horses out. And so he did that and he got everything required for being a war chief. And he later went on to be uh, an academic and a historian. He addressed the UN. He won the, the Medal of Freedom and lived to be 103. Oh, wow. That's incredible. Yeah. So do you think that your podcast is something that if people are looking for, I don't want to make it belittle it by saying like random facts, but. Um, oh, no, it's well, it's not random. The episodes are random. Okay. But each episode is a coherent story. It's not just like it's a bunch of facts okay. that are random, but every episode is going to be, it, it's, it's like, you know, it's like Forrest Gump and a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get every day. And I think that's what people kind of find appealing about it is that there are things most people, I, I don't know. I don't know if you remember it, but back in the uh, second Iraq war, the defense secretary, Donald Rumsfeld was giving a, 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 a press conference and he was talking about how there are, you know, known knowns. There are things we know we know. And then there are things we, there are known unknowns, things we know we don't know. And then there are unknown unknowns, things we don't even know we don't know. And I've had a lot of people say, it's like, I didn't even know I didn't know that. <laughs> because it's, you know, we have a set things that we, you know, we, we get in school or whatnot. And then there's this whole body of knowledge that unless you can come across it. And in the digital world, it, this is very hard because we're fed everything by an algorithm, right? Mm-hmm. So if you show an interest in knitting or something, Google and Facebook, they'll show you more stuff about knitting, mm-hmm. but they're not going to show you something on aircraft carriers mm-hmm. and vice versa. Right. So maybe you don't have a deep interest in aircraft carriers, but you know, if, if you learn, oh, that's, that's interesting. I didn't, I didn't know that. And it's just, it's something else that you can, you know, add to a body of knowledge and, it's, it's an opportunity to have serendipity where otherwise something like that doesn't really exist online. Yeah, there's actually, I mean, people are using the saying now, um, I'd say within the last year or so, you know, I don't, you don't know what you don't know. Have you heard anyone say that to you? I've heard that several times. Well, yeah, it's, and, and there's a, a truth to it. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the things in traveling that I found is that, the, you know, one of the big problems before the pandemic is the concept of over-tourism. And there are certain places where everybody visits and you'll go Mm -hmm. to Venice or something and it's just packed with people. Um, The problem of over tourism isn't actually too many people traveling. The problem is too many people going to the same place. Hmm. And the reason why they all go to the same place is because they don't know about anything else. Right. I could list, you know, a dozen places in Italy off the top of my head that most Americans have never heard of, Hmm. but they're really great places to visit. 
and they they just don't go there you know you go to rome florence and venice and that's kind of the the typical route that most people make but they're not going to lucca which has some of the oldest and best city walls in uh, all of europe actually or they're not going to padua 20 minutes outside of venice absolutely great city almost completely empty so is that what you were doing when you were with your travel travel blog was, um, you know, showing that there are these other cities that are out there that you could visit different than what you would find on all the typical ones? Oh, yeah. So like I, you know, you usually say where you've been, but in terms of countries or something, but mm-hmm. there's a huge difference between setting foot in a country and really exploring it. So yeah. I've been to every state in Australia. I've been to every state in Germany. I've been to every state in South Africa. Uh, I, I've actually, you know, been, I've been to every state in the U S twice. I've been to every Canadian province three times, and it's going to a lot of places that are otherwise, uh, you know, don't get many visitors at all, or people don't really know about it. So that's what I do want to ask you that question. Um, uh, some of the listeners might know that I'm originally, I was born and raised in Montreal, Canada. And so, as you said, you've been to, um, the provinces in Canada three times, which places were your favorite? Any fun stories from there? Sure. <laughs> um, I'll give you, uh, I'll tell you something that I, I almost say on every podcast interview. Sorry. And the, the reason I say it is because it's one of the best places on earth. It's Nahani national park, probably if, if not one of the greatest national parks in the world, certainly really up there. And the reason I bring it up is because most people have never heard of it. Most Canadians have never heard of it. I've never heard of it. Yep. And then it gets 800 visitors a year. And the reason why is because there's no roads connecting it to the outside world. And it's in the Northwest Territories. So to get there, you have to drive pretty far. You have to drive either to uh, the, the, the town of Fort Simpson in the Northwest Territories or Muncho Lake, British Columbia, which is in the far north of British Columbia. And then you have to take a, a float plane to fly in. But it's, it's absolutely spectacular. They have one of the biggest waterfalls in the world. Some of the most, uh, you know, incredible uh, mountain peaks, the Ram River Gorge. It's a little bit Grand Canyon, Yellowstone, Niagara Falls, all mixed up into one. And I bring it up because if, if people actually heeded my advice and went there, you'd probably see a change in the numbers pretty easy because so few people go right. and it never happens. Uh, and there's another great park in, in Canada, Torngat Mountains National Park, which is on the northernmost tip of Labrador. And uh, there's fjords there, just like you'd find in Norway. And it's run by a local Inuit community, and it's a fantastic, fantastic place. And again, it gets about the same, you know, 800 people. And half of those actually aren't even stopping in the park. They're just sailing through it uh, on their way further north. So there are lots of great places uh, you know, that are out there, even in Northern Quebec, you'll find uh, a lot of parks, you know, a lot of people they're either going to Montreal, they're going to Quebec Mm -hmm. city. And that's, that's what they know of uh, for Quebec. Uh, But there's several great national parks. There is, you know, Quebec's a really big province. Mm -hmm. I don't think people, most people in Quebec probably don't even have an appreciation for how big it is because all the people live, you know, in a very small cluster along the St. Lawrence you know, as far south as you can get. And that's true for all of Canada, actually. Right, right. Unless you decide, you know, you want to go skiing somewhere. That's typical for then you venture up. Well, and, that you way. know, and then a lot of people, if you think of a national park in Canada, first thing everyone thinks of is Banff, mm-hmm. which, which is a great park. But it gets, I was there in the summer once 
And there's so many people mm. and it's these bus trips and they're just piling in everyone in Banff. Yet, if you go just over the border into British Columbia, so there are four national parks in the Rockies there that are all connected. There's Banff, Jasper, Yoho, and Kootenai. And if you just go over to the British Columbian side, the number of people is dramatically less, mm -hmm. even though it's the same thing. And a lot of people just don't know this stuff. And there are provincial parks. If you go further south of Banff that are basically empty because nobody isn't, goes there. Isn't there a national park? I, I thought I read about this, something like it's called international, something that it's bordering. Is it in the United States or is it Canada and the United States that it borders on several provinces or states? Maybe. It's well, states. there's the. There's the International Peace Garden. That's not really a park. Uh, that, that's that's what it was. Yeah. That uh, it's in North Dakota and Saskatchewan, I think. Okay. Or maybe Manitoba, but it literally sits on the border. Mm. And when you're there, you can actually walk around the garden and cross the border if you wanted. So, uh, if you ever want an easy way to get into Canada or the U.S., <laughs> depending on what side you're in, without going through immigration, that's one way you can do it. <laughs> but also. Um, Glacier National Park in Montana borders Waterton Lakes National Park in Alberta. Okay. And you can, you, you can actually cross the border there too. There's a boat on uh, Waterton Lake that you can actually go across. And uh, if, like if you're going from Canada into the U.S., you can't really get anywhere. Like just, it's just the side of the lake and there's no way to walk out of it. Um, but it's something you can do. Okay. And you've talked a lot about, you know, those kinds of places to visit if you're someone who is outdoorsy or, I mean, yes, we all love a beautiful view. Have you been to any cities or places? No, I've never been to a city. <laughs> Where there are people, any no, favorite I, cities? <laughs> uh, one of my favorite cities is Singapore, Ooh. although it's become very expensive. Hmm. Uh, Melbourne, Sydney, Auckland uh are really great cities vancouver uh Planning what they all have there. in common is, is they're all very expensive to live yeah well in fact most cities are becoming that way now yeah. the price of real estate has just gone up uh dramatically uh i hate new york the only place i hate more than new york is los angeles i just can't stand them you know i can i can deal with new york for about four days and then mm -hmm. i kind of want to leave and new in los angeles it's maybe a, one day that's kind of my tolerance. And is it again, just because of the surge of all the people or the, is it the cost of just going to visit there? Uh, no, in those cases, it's, it's the people themselves. Uh, <laughs> I, I kind of can't stand. Um, but there's a lot of other you know, great cities in Europe. I love going to London. Uh, and every time I go, I'm kind of in a different neighborhood where I mm -hmm. stay. And that makes it a kind of a completely different experience. Rome. And then there's lots of you know, smaller cities as well that you know, maybe people haven't heard of that are, are, are great to visit. It's been a while. Some of these places I haven't been to in, in a pretty long time, like Dubai. Mm -hmm. I, I was really only there in 2009. Uh, and that, that's grown a lot since then. Um, but I was never really that impressed with Dubai because it just seems very shallow. Mm -hmm. you know, there's a lot of malls and stuff. Whereas if you go into Oman, it was kind of a much more uh, authentic experience. Uh, then there are some big cities like Manila and Jakarta that are just, they're just big mm -hmm. and they're just kind of go on forever. And there's no real, there's not a lot there. I, I don't know. It's kind of a way of describing it. Uh, Bangkok, I really like, 
Uh, and I was there kind of in, in 2010, I spent a lot of time in Bangkok and it was, uh, I really enjoyed the culture where you could go out and just eat on the street. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, when the sun set, all the street vendors would leave and then these guys would come in and set up these portable bars on the side of the road. They'd like have this small pickup truck and then on the sides of the pickup truck, seats would fold out and they would literally tend bar from inside the pickup truck. And they were just these portable bars. Um, we and can do that here, right? Because we have enough trucks and en- enough booze. It's the liquor licensing and stuff. I mean, oh, that's right. Whatever yeah. you wanted. I, and then I've heard they've kind of cracked down on the street vendors, which I hope is not true, but I, I haven't been back there in a while. Yeah, it, it all depends. Cape Town is a great city. Uh, I liked Cape Town. I like Durban too in South Africa. Uh, and even they're not as big, but like uh, Swakamund, uh in in Walvis Bay in Namibia they're kind of like twin cities there are other cities that are surprising as well even like uh Accra and Ghana uh I thought was very nice so I have a stumper for you sure have you ever been to Pittsburgh technically yes (laughs) but I I didn't spend a lot of time there I just I have a friend and she's gonna I'm gonna make her listen to this she loves Pittsburgh it's like her favorite place she wants to live there Pittsburgh. Like, what? Actually, I did an episode where I mentioned Pittsburgh, and it was uh, George Washington uh, ended up starting what was basically World War Zero. Uh, it was known as the Seven Years' War. It was the French Indian War here, but it, it, it sparked a global conflict, and it all occurred in Pittsburgh. Really? Hmm. Yeah, when he attacked some some French uh, this this group of French that were there. That's weird. Oh my gosh. Yeah. She's, she went to visit once and, and um, some of her stories have been like, you know, she's with her Uber driver and they're all like, well, what are you doing in Pittsburgh here to visit family? And she's like, no, I just love the city. And they're like, what? And it's like, there is no tourism in Pittsburgh. Nobody comes here to visit the city. And she said, it was just, it was so people were so genuine and it was beautiful. And she, she described it as there's like, it's hilly and, and, and the views are beautiful, which again, I would have never thought that. So. I think that Pittsburgh and there's all this, you know, kind of starting with Pittsburgh and then going West, there were a whole bunch of cities, you know, and I'd include Milwaukee in this too, that were really gutted out kind of starting in the seventies through the eighties. Like, you know, growing up, I always thought of Milwaukee as a dump. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was just there in October. I actually spent a few days in Milwaukee. The first time I've, I've ever done that, to be honest. Wow. And it's, it's actually kind of nice now, you know, the museum's rather nice and, you know, they're kind of moved on from this rust belt sort of, uh, image, but a lot of people, you know, if you, if I talk to people from outside of the United States and they tell me that they've been to the U S I can guess with high probability where they've been, hmm. They've either been to New York, L.A., San Francisco, Las Vegas, Orlando, or Washington. And the entire middle of the country to them, they, they can't, you know, you're from America. Ah, California. No. <laughs> Texas. No. And then they're done. That's all they got. <laughs> and it's a lot how, you know, most Americans, it's like, oh, you're from Europe. Oh, you're from uh, England. No. Germany. No. France. No. Where? Oh, I'm from Macedonia. I don't know what that is. And <laughs> there's this kind of broad central Europe where the borders, you know, kind of like the Great Plains in the U.S., where we mm-hmm. all the states have, you know, their squares. 
And a lot of people can't tell them apart from each other. It's hard putting Wyoming versus Colorado on a map or something, or knowing the difference between Kansas and Nebraska. And I think that, uh, you know, a lot of, a lot of people think they know about the United States because they see it on movies and TV mm-hmm. and they really kind of just know a caricature of it. Yeah, no, that's interesting too. Yeah. Um, that makes sense. Right. Especially if that's where you're, you're ingesting your information from, from television shows or movies. I mean, I, I haven't been to Singapore, but when you said it, I was like, Oh, crazy rich Asians. Right. That's, that's what I think. And that's what I picture in my head. Um, but I haven't been there, so I wouldn't really know for sure. Looks fun. It is. It's a, it's a, well, I describe Singapore as what a country would be like if it was run by Disney world in the Ooh. best and worst sense of the word. <laughs> okay. So tell me more about that. What do you mean? Well, if Disney world ran it, it'd be very clean. There'd be no litter, right? Everything would be spotless. Everything would run properly, but there, there's not a whole lot of individuality. There isn't a lot of, um, you're not going to see a crazy guy in the corner spouting off some nonsense about some conspiracy theory or the stuff you'll see in like Venice beach that just won't exist in Singapore. It was, it's a system that worked really well for them uh, when they were growing. I, I actually got obsessed about Singapore the first time I went there. This is like in 1999 and I became obsessed with how the country started because it's, it's founding most countries will like fight to the death to keep their country together. If there's some breakaway region and they'll have a civil war, Singapore was kicked out of Malaysia. (laughs) Like they were just like kicked out of the club. And so they were originally part of Malaysia when Malaysia became independent and they got kicked out because uh, Malaysia is a country with a Malay majority and they have a, a Chinese and Indian minority. Singapore is the opposite. It's a Chinese majority with a Malay and Indian minority. So they basically got kicked out and they kind of had to go their own way. And the, the leader of the country is a guy named Lee Kuan Yew. And he was extremely pragmatic. He's like, okay, this is what we got to do. We're going to invite in every company we can think of. And the first generation, they'll work in the factories. And the second generation will be the managers of the factories. And the third generation will own the factories. And that's kind of what happened. Wow. And you know they have very little land. They're basically a city state and they've been able to go from a very poor country. And it really was a poor country. that was mm-hmm. just a fishing village to being arguably uh, one of the richest and most prosperous countries in the world now. That's incredible. And they did that within the span of 50 years. But yeah. And that's a really short time period when you think about that, right. And in, in regards to, to all of that, everything from infrastructure to whatever that's, that yeah. is really incredible. Um, so when you were traveling and this is just my own curiosity, obviously you were, um, eating, uh, did you, did you develop a penchant for international cuisine and different food or were you open to any of that? We kind of have no choice. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) um, yeah, you, you, you eat whatever you can eat. I'm, I'm not a very fussy eater, so I'll eat pretty much anything and I have eaten pretty much anything. Um, it, but the way you're going to eat and the way it's served is obviously going to be very different depending on uh, what country you're in. Um, Did you have some favorites? But, yeah. I mean, I, my favorite food is, is Japanese uh, really? by a mile. Next would probably be Argentina mm-hmm. uh, and maybe Spain. And why those um, places? What did you have in Argentina that you liked? Beef. 
They are known for that. People don't know that out here. Yeah. I mean, if you're a vegetarian, don't go there. Just just don't even bother. (laughs) Just stay away from all of, you know, everything in South America, south of the equator. Just it's not worth it. Um, I remember the first time I went to Argentina was before I started traveling. It was for a, a research project I was doing when I was studying geology. And we actually, it was so cheap at the time too. Like the exchange rate was just so favorable mm-hmm. to the U.S. dollar that we actually ended our project a day early so we could go back to Buenos Aires a day early and eat more steak. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, so I, I mentioned to you that I lived there for two years. Um, I was younger um, because my dad's business took us there, but uh, it's probably where, well, it's not probably, it is where I learned how to speak Spanish and understand the language. Um, so uh, I do have really good memories of what a beautiful city that was. And it was, we were there right after uh, they had gone through martial law. So uh, it was kind of interesting to be able to roam the streets. And, um, but the, the food, from what I remember, uh, was very good. Uh, it was also the wine. Yeah. Was good there. And I think it might've been the place where I first rode on a horse, which wasn't a good experience. Um, <laughs> but Argentina is a country I feel that really should be doing better. Mm. Uh, they actually used to be at the start of the 20th century, one of the richest countries in the world. And they've basically gone backwards because a lot of the economic policies that were, you know, especially because of the Peronis and they've always developed this sort of nationalistic Peronist uh, economic policy that's always hurt them. And if you look at what Chile has done next door, Chile is now the, by far, uh, the richest country in Latin America. And they've done it by basically, uh, you know, having Western uh, economic policies. And I don't know why everyone's like, let's do what Chile does work for them, but no one ever does it. But well, that's what I say about being here and having been raised in Canada. I'm like, let's just have healthcare for everybody. Why don't you just do it? You know, then everybody can go do whatever they want to do and not worry about doing a crap, a job. And yet they there are three do. times more Canadians in the U S than there are Americans in Canada. Wait a minute. Yep. Really? And it's not on a per capita basis either. That's just raw numbers. Uh, there's about 300,000 Canadians living and working in the U S and about a hundred thousand Americans. So on a per capita basis, it's 30 times more Canadians coming to the U S and you know why, yeah. right? Money. You know why? Do you have a guess? The, the love of freedom and liberty. <laughs> I'm going to say you, I'm going to say, cause the good old USA knows how to market themselves. Right. You know, the land. Well, of- there's just more, you know, name a large company. Yeah. And you can say this about Europe as well. Every large company in Europe is like a hundred years old. And if you look at the largest companies in the U S you, most of them are under 50 years old. Uh, Google, Facebook, Apple, Microsoft, um, Amazon, they're all relatively young companies. Uh, and I think the same is true. Uh, I can't think of any, you know, the major Canadian companies are usually either resource companies or they're focused on Canada, like, you know, Scotia bank or something like that. That's, mm-hmm. you know, a Canadian bank, you know, there's, uh, Bombier, which is an aircraft manufacturer for small planes. I can't think of a lot of other stuff. I can't think of any either right now. Although my bank, um, you know, Bank of Montreal, which over here now is BMO Harris, uh, that that was from there. I, I think the banking thing, though, that once you operate in another country, it's like it's a different company, mm-hmm. technically. Hmm. So I don't know what the, yeah. the story behind that is. But I know that, yeah, BMO stands for Bank of Montreal. 
Yeah. Yeah. Most, and of course, most people don't know that. So if you could choose to live anywhere, would you still choose to stay and live in the United States or would you, is there a country you prefer to be in? I don't know if I'd want to stay in one place. Hmm. You know, right now I, so I moved back to Wisconsin because I lived in Minneapolis and I, I, where I lived was right in the middle of the, the, the riots, the George Floyd riots. Yeah. And I wasn't at ground zero, but I was well within the blast radius. Like mm-hmm. the, the gas station I went to every day burned down. Uh, all of the places around me, the restaurants were either, you know, had everything inside gutted out, uh, all the windows broken. And after a few months, nothing changed. You know, nothing was really being fixed and the city was preventing people from, from fixing anything, which I thought was just the craziest thing I'd ever heard. And so I left. One day I just got a U-Haul and I just left. And uh, I've been here now for a year and a half, kind of waiting for the pandemic to die down and just working on the podcast. Mm -hmm. But I've been thinking, you know, I can basically do this anywhere. Mm -hmm. Uh, There are places now that have been rolling out digital visa, uh, digital nomad visas. So Mm -hmm. Barbados, Estonia, Georgia, all have, uh, you can work there for an extended period of time. Uh, so you can stay like six months or a year uh, just working on stuff. And they're glad to have you because if you're working online, you're just spending money there. You know, right. you're not taking a job away from anybody. Right. So interesting. it's possible I might do something like that. That's cool. That'd be interesting to hear if you end up doing that. Um, so since, you know, you are a podcaster and we talked a lot about the, the travel blog and all that you did in the past, but, um, moving forward, are there any podcasts that you like to listen to? Oh yeah. I, I listen to quite a few podcasts. Most of them are podcasts about podcasting or their history podcasts. Uh, I don't listen to very many interview podcasts, to be honest. Mm. Uh, the history podcasts usually tend to be, uh, solo shows. Uh, mm-hmm. occasionally they'll bring on a guest or if I do listen to someone with a guest, it's not, it's, it tends to be pretty specific type stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's only so many podcasts you can listen to just, you know, given time. And I tend to listen on double speed. So <laughs> that's how you ingest all that information. <laughs> yeah. So like the, there's uh you know, the life of, uh, the life of Caesars is one I listen to, uh, tides of history, the podcasting 2.0 show. Um, which is pretty good. I'll check out there. I've been listening to some Bitcoin podcasts lately and I've dropped some of those because they just weren't very good. And I've started listening to a couple others. Yeah. We don't want to get into that too much detail. Right. <laughs> and it's changing every day. Yeah. So that's, and that's kind of what I'm listening to right now. Okay. So, well, I appreciate you taking the time to speak with me. If people want to find you, where do they need to go? Uh, just search for everything everywhere daily, wherever you're listening to this show right now. That's awesome. Well, Gary, thanks for all the info and making me think about where do I want to travel next when I can travel? Um, probably I'll give you a call and say, hey, give me some names of some places that nobody knows about. That is not hard to do. <laughs> thanks, Gary. All right. Thanks for having me. All right. Take care. Hey guys, thanks for listening. Obviously, Gary and I recorded this last March, and whoa, 
there's a lot of information that Gary shared. Anyway, follow me wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you like the episodes, leave me a review so others can find me too. Also, because I'm an independent podcaster and not affiliated with a media company, I do everything on my own. If you'd like to support this podcast, feel free to buy me a coffee. See the show notes for details on how to do this. For everything else, like questions and suggestions, you can DM me on Instagram. I'll feature another episode next week. So make sure to come back and make time for some podcast therapy.